Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're once again talking about Activision Blizzard because quite frankly, a number of you reached out to me to say I didn't talk about it quite enough. I'm not kidding, folks. Now, if you were with us yesterday, you saw that we added a video to our Activision Under Fire playlist. And that video was really about the EEOC settlement that has finally been approved after California's attempts to intervene on its own behalf a number of times, including looking for an emergency appeal at the Ninth Circuit. Now, at the end of this video, I did, in fact, discuss a news article that was put up at the Wall Street Journal roughly the same time that we were putting this video together. And I said, hey, Microsoft is also going to have to worry about some of this because there are certain people in the U.S. legislature that are concerned about this proposition for reasons that are separate from almost everything that we have talked about in this space. In fact, the Wall Street Journal article was headlined for U.S. Senators cite Microsoft Activision deal concern in an FTC letter. Senators Warren Sanders, Booker and Whitehouse say deal could undermine Activision Blizzard's employees' calls for accountability. Now, I mentioned this at the end of that video that I did yesterday because I said, hey, Microsoft's going to have to look out. I've long said that this has about an 80% chance of going through at the FTC. You start to get more and more noise and more saber rattling. That percentage will come down a little bit. A number of you come into my comments and say, well, why would the FTC, why would the Senate, why would anybody fight against an American company for the benefit of a Japanese company? And I've told folks that that's really not how the United States laws here, the Clayton Act, the Sherman Act, antitrust laws in general, are set up. It's not protectionist. It's about competition and what is usually framed as consumer welfare. We will be talking about that in this video. It's not supposed to be about U.S. agencies advantaging American companies to harm Japanese or other jurisdictions companies or vice versa. Here, these senators are actually espousing a very specific view of the FTC's powers here, and it's a view that I don't think is quite warranted under the current jurisprudence and the law, which is why the thumbnail calls them silly senators. But senators are politicians, and they have their own reasons for making a statement like this. We will also discuss that in this video. But a lot of you did reach out to me to discuss this particular news item because a lot of folks are concerned about whether or not this deal will go through on one side or the other. Now, here I want to give a hat tip to Stephen Totillo at Axios who wound up putting the entire letter up there uh, with respect to the substance. There's a few footnotes that are cut off, which is absolutely fine. Uh, but I do want to give that hat tip to him because this was the only place that I could actually find the whole letter, which we're going to go through in this video. Before we do, though, we have to start with foundational principles. As we've talked about, the FTC is currently reviewing this deal. And what that means is that they are reviewing the deal to determine whether or not this combination of entities will result in monopolistic power or otherwise harm competition. We're going to be looking at the law specifically there. But in this current step where they've asked for another set of information from these two companies, where they're doing interviews, where they're actually diving deep into whether or not this will affect various markets related to Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, realistically, the only way they can stop the deal is here in number three as step five. Government regulations always have these kinds of things, but they say they can seek to stop the entire transaction by filing for a preliminary injunction in federal court pending an administrative trial 
on the merits. And we've talked about this, right? This is the three branches of the U.S. government. The legislature passed a law that gives the FTC the right to examine these things. And the FTC can bring a claim in front of the judiciary. That brings in the executive represented by the FTC, the legislature, and the judicial functions of the government so that everybody gets a say in this before a major something happens here, stopping a merger or acquisition. But the FTC's ambit is limited by the letters on the page, the way the actual law is written. So if we go and we look at the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, which added to the Clayton Act, which for purposes of this conversation can just mean antitrust laws, you see that this section says exactly what they can do. If a proceeding is instituted or an action is filed by the Federal Trade Commission alleging a proposed acquisition violates Section 18 or Section 45, then they can go through that whole process of stopping things. I'll shorten the legalese for you. But we're pointed directly at Section 18 and Section 45, which, if you're familiar with the Clayton Act, is exactly where you would expect to be directed. This is something that we've looked at earlier in the playlist, but this is the portion of the act that says, no person engaged in commerce shall acquire the stock of another if that purchase would affect substantially lessened competition or tend to create a monopoly. That's what the FTC or the DOJ, if they're the body that's otherwise going to look at this, is actually authorized to review. And the executive agencies can only do what the legislature tells them, or at least that's how this is supposed to work. So if they are going to get in front of this deal and stop it and seek that injunction, it has to be on the basis of tending to create a monopoly or substantially lessening competition. A number of you have come into the comments, otherwise discuss with me that you don't feel like this is anything close to a monopoly. And certainly in the gaming industry in general, it certainly wouldn't appear to be anything close to a monopoly. As I've described it in this playlist and elsewhere in virtual reality though, I have pointed out that you can make different markets that you can examine if you're the FTC. You could say, hey, we're just gonna look at library subscription services. Does this tend to create a monopoly? Does this lessen competition that might otherwise be thrown at it from the Spartacuses of the world? And that the FTC, if they were so inclined, could maybe find substantial market power in those limited markets that could otherwise create reasoning for them to stop this deal. Now they do get additional authority from section 45 here. This is really about deception. It's unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. These are hereby declared unlawful. That's probably not applicable here. We're probably still talking about competition and monopoly, but but who knows? That's the foundational principles that what the FTC is permitted to do is very specifically labeled in these laws, even if the laws themselves are at least somewhat ambiguous. As we've talked about in this space, what does it mean to lessen competition? How is that examined? And that's why these guidelines exist. And yes, we'll be talking about those as well. But that's your foundational principle. The FTC is reviewing this deal to determine whether it substantially lessens competition. Now, Enter the senators who are going to speak directly to the chairperson of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, and say the following. We're going to read this whole first paragraph, and then we're going to talk about other foundational principles so we can understand why I did frame this strategy as at least a little bit silly. Dear Chairwoman Khan, we are writing today regarding Microsoft's proposed $68.7 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard, a merger that threatens worker-led demands for accountability and could create a dangerous precedent in the industry. Workers at Activision Blizzard following years of rampant sexual misconduct and discrimination and unfair labor practices have led calls for greater transparency and accountability in the gaming industry. And we are deeply concerned that this acquisition could further disenfranchise these workers and prevent their voices from being heard. 
As this proposed deal moves forward in the review process, the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, should assess whether the ways in which these companies have failed to protect the rights and dignity of their workers are driven by monopsony power or amount to anti-competitive harms in our labor market, and if so, if the merger will exacerbate these problems. Now, we're going to talk about monopsony. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. But the first thing I want to point out is that the sentence that opens this document, the one that's most likely to be read by anyone interested in this, is talking about workers and worker-led demands. And at least ostensibly, when we look at these laws here, when we look at what the FTC is authorized to do, what they say they can do about competition, it isn't generally their ambit to protect worker-led demands. For the most part, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, the antitrust laws in the United States under Supreme Court jurisprudence have been held to mostly be focused on the consumer welfare standard, i.e. whether a merger, acquisition, combination, or other commercial effect will lower quality or increase prices at the consumer level. Why do they do that? Because it's a very difficult thing to analyze mergers and acquisitions in any event. We'll see in the horizontal merger guidelines that we're about to talk about that effectively says, well, we're predicting the future, so that's always a problem. And so you're looking for something quantifiable. And most importantly, as we've spoken about in the past in this space, the antitrust laws are not designed to protect competitors. They're not designed to protect market participants. They're designed to protect the concept of competition on the whole. So all other things being equal, if a merger or combination were to allow a merged company to create three times the products at half the price, but using half the workers, that would be something that the antitrust laws would be all for because the consumers, the folks at the end of the line that are buying the product or service are benefiting from that combination. And there's really no better way to analyze the effects of a merger or acquisition. Now, the EU would disagree with some of that. Other jurisdictions would disagree with some of that. But jurisprudence right now in the United States is focused on that consumer welfare standard. And what the opening paragraph of this letter says is ignore that. Says, don't focus on the consumer welfare standard. Focus on the workers, the worker-led demands. We want to have these powers equalized. Now, they do try to use at the end of this paragraph concepts and language that the FTC might be responsive to with respect to the actual ambit give it to an under the law, right? They talk about monopsony power, which is for purposes of legal questions, the same as monopoly power, which we saw referenced in the Clayton Act and Hart Scott Rudino itself. Anti-competitive harms in our labor market, etc. Now, the interesting thing there is there is, of course, a, a market for labor, just like there's a market for any other input in the creation of products or services. But in general, those are secondary. We don't think of those as being the primary indicators of when a merger or acquisition should be stopped, except... These folks, these senators know who they're talking to, and we'll see that as well. Now, first, I want to talk about the horizontal merger guidelines, as we have in the past, just to highlight the consumer welfare standard as it appears right now. Enhancement of market power by sellers often elevates the prices charged to consumers for simplicity of exposition. The guidelines generally discuss the analysis in terms of such price effects. The agencies examine effects on either both of the direct consumers and the final consumers. The agencies presume, absent convincing evidence to the contrary, that adverse effects on direct consumers also cause adverse effects on final consumers. But those are people purchasing things. Enhancement of market power by buyers, sometimes called monopsony power, has adverse effects comparable to enhancement of market power by sellers. So what these senators are claiming is that Microsoft, by purchasing Activision Blizzard, becomes a monopsony buyer 
a, a buyer with outsized market power of game makers, of people that actually develop and otherwise work in game companies. Now, there's a number of issues there that probably are jumping out to you already, but here's how the guidelines actually refer to monopsony power. Mergers of competing buyers can enhance market power on the buying side of the market, just as mergers of competing sellers can enhance market powers on the selling side of the market. Buyer market power is sometimes called monopsony power. To evaluate whether a merger is likely to enhance market power on the buying side of the market, the agencies employ essentially the framework described above for evaluating whether a merger is likely to enhance market power on the selling side of the market. They're analyzing changes in price and whether that'll affect the markets, etc., etc. In defining relevant markets, the agencies focus on the alternatives available to sellers in the face of a decrease in the price paid by a hypothetical monopsonist, right? If Microsoft Activision, after they combined, just said, we're now paying everybody 20% less, can those people go somewhere else? Market power on the buying side of the market is not a significant concern if suppliers have numerous attractive outlets for their goods or services, which is where these senators run into a lot of trouble, right? What they're mostly focused on, and we will see in the rest of the letter, is these folks have been treated unfairly at Activision Blizzard, which at least as alleged in all these various documents, I don't know that anybody would disagree with at this point. But because of that unfair treatment, they are acting against Activision Blizzard. They're in the kind of nascent stages of that. And this deal will scuttle that. This deal will get in the way. And we don't want that to happen. Now, I have said in the past, I personally have a problem with this line of argument from CWA, the union, and now these senators, which suggest that because they've been treated so poorly and are now trying to fight back, they shouldn't just skip to new management. And certain folks have pointed out that Microsoft has all sorts of trouble. And that's that's true. Microsoft's a giant corporation and has dealt with certain things of their own. But I think in a vacuum, new management is more likely to help than hurt compared to what we have seen from Activision Blizzard. Certainly just their responses and handling of this since last summer has been, well, let's just call it wanting. And so I am in favor of seeing these people that should get redressed, that should have better lives, that shouldn't have to deal with these kinds of things, see that new management. Even if it's not a guarantee, it is pretty much a guarantee that things aren't going to change terribly quickly at Activision Blizzard by themselves. So I would see that change if I were just in charge of the world, which of course I'm not. The bigger problem for the senators, of course, is that they have to claim monopsony power to fall under the Hart Scott Rodino Act, to fall under the Clayton Act, and yet they're talking about a deal in which Microsoft picks up 10,000 or so employees out of what is currently reported on as about 300,000 employees in the U.S. alone. So they have to claim that they are effectively monopoly buyers of labor services after this transaction, and that's just not remotely the case. People come to me and complain about when I say there could possibly be a monopoly in some kind of gaming service like subscription, like cloud, something like that. This is even worse. Microsoft adding 10,000 video game employees doesn't even move the needle at all in terms of their market and labor buying power. Worse, in the video game industry and tech in general, you don't have significant input costs that are required to start a video game studio. We have tiny studios all over the world and in the United States of course. So if they just got a 20% pay cut, not only are there other employers that could offer them services, there is the entire possibility of them just leaving. This is how Respawn starts, right? They're unhappy with the way that they're being treated. This is how a whole host of companies start. In fact, I'm playing a game right now called Weird West that are people that just offshot from Arcane Studios. It's fantastic, right? That's what we love to see in video games and technology. And so when you're making this claim that Microsoft becomes a monopsony buyer, an anti-competitive buyer of labor services, to me, I look at it and say, that's almost laughable. But we'll see from the politicians here that they have other things in mind 
as well. Then we're going to get a recitation of Activision Blizzard's many sins. Activision Blizzard's frat boy culture has come to light in recent years as regulators investigated allegations of sexual misconduct and discrimination, and Activision Blizzard employees have spoken up about their experiences at the company. In September 2021, Activision Blizzard agreed to pay $18 million to settle allegations with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission over gender-based harassment and retaliation at the company. Following an investigation that started in May 2020, the EEOC alleged that Activision Blizzard employees were subjected to sexual harassment that was severe or pervasive to alter the conditions of employment, and the company failed to take corrective and preventative, uh, we're skipping ahead here, preventative measures. Similarly, in July 2021, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing filed a suit against Activision Blizzard alleging gender-based discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, with female employees routinely subjected to unwanted sexual advances and other harassing conduct. Since the lawsuit was filed, Activision Blizzard received more than 500 reports from current and former employees alleging harassment, sexual assault, bullying, pay disparities, and other issues. And we, in fact, have seen something like that uh, in the wild since we've been covering this story. Now, that's the litany of things against Activision Blizzard. We're going to continue with some others. But I wanted to point out, backing up a step, that as I suggested, the senators know who they're talking to, right? There's a problem calling this a monopsony. There's a problem calling all of these things problematic under the current reading of the law. But we have seen from Lena Khan herself that she is at least somewhat invested in taking a different approach to antitrust regulation. In fact, one of the very first things she says in her memo to her people in September of last year, first, we need to take a holistic approach to identifying harms, recognizing that antitrust and consumer protection violates uh, violations harm workers and independent businesses as well as consumers. She would seek to advocate that antitrust law should be applied on more of a stakeholder basis. The workers, the independent businesses that supply other companies that otherwise are affected by what companies do more than just consumers. She would protect some of those competitors. And unfortunately for her, that's not current jurisprudence. That's not currently how the courts treat antitrust law. And the senators here are effectively asking her to ignore those things. We've got another article here from Stanford Law School that talks about the consumer welfare standard, which says, under the consumer welfare standard, an act is deemed anti-competitive only when it harms both allocative efficiency and raises the prices of goods above competitive levels or diminishes their quality. Whether an action or policy is found to be anti-competitive depends ultimately on whether consumers pay higher prices, and this should add to it, this is just a summary, or whether they receive fewer goods. Those are really the two kind of axes that you see here. Since 1979, the Supreme Court has focused on that consumer welfare theory of antitrust law. And yet, the reason the senators are making this claim, and we'll see it at the end of their letter, is uh, more specifically about them and in the environment where you've got folks writing all over that the consumer welfare standard is potentially bad. Now, this is a pretty big fight, technically, in terms of uh, legal professionals. Here's an article from a specific lawyer that says consumer welfare standard should cease to be the North Star of antitrust. And a section here saying the consumer welfare standard has contorted and emasculated federal antitrust law. I'm not really sure what's masculine in one way or the other uh, about federal antitrust law, but maybe we should read this section. In, in any event, you've got these fights the problem is, is that the courts are the ones that are interpreting these laws, which are pretty vague in terms of the standards to be applied here. Consumer welfare has been around for decades and decades and decades and decades now and seems to have been agreed upon as the best way to look at these things. And then when you advocate for a different way, primarily, you should be advocating for a change in the law, right? The Supreme Court's just interpreting the law put before it, but to just ask for the FTC, an executive agency, to change in light of the fact that the judiciary would probably just smack down a significant change on these grounds is 
mostly just politicking, grandstanding, right? Silly strategies, silly senators. Continuing, Activision Blizzard is also facing a wide-ranging investigation from the Securities and Exchange Commission into its handling of sexual misconduct and discrimination that has enmeshed several senior executives, including CEO Bobby Kotick. Now, the truth here is that what they are looking at is whether or not disclosures were made properly. Despite Mr. Kotick's professed ignorance, internal documents and interviews released in November 2021 showed that he was aware of several sexual misconduct issues, including alleged assaults, and failed to inform the board of directors or regulators. And of course, there are standards there about materiality and things like that. We've talked about that earlier in the playlist. You should check that out. This is obviously a rhetorical letter designed to try to persuade. The Wall Street Journal reported that in 2019, Mr. Kotick explicitly intervened on behalf of an employee accused of sexual harassment against the recommendations of the Human Resources Department, and that in 2020, he was aware of an email from 30 female employees alleging unwanted touching, demeaning comments, exclusion from important meetings, and unsolicited comments on their appearance. Former Activision Blizzard employee Jennifer O'Neill, the first woman to lead one of the company's business units, left in September 2021 after experiencing sexual harassment and discrimination, writing that the company would never prioritize our people the right way. And of course, the Jennifer O'Neill hiring slash firing and everything that came out of that was one of Activision Blizzard's uh, darkest moments in all of this, primarily because it happened after the troubles started for the company and they still screwed up. There's no question that management at Activision Blizzard is uh, very, very silly in its own right in the way that it has handled all of this. And certainly if you want to apply that to the fact that they probably handled everything before the troubles were announced last summer, then I wouldn't be one to disagree with you. In addition to the allegations that Activision Blizzard fostered and protected a culture of sexual misconduct and discrimination, the company has been accused of exploiting quality assurance employees and abruptly laying off significant sections of their team. QA workers who are undervalued and exploited frequently work 50 and 60 hour weeks for contracts below the living wage of their locations. In December 2021, Activision Blizzard laid off at least a dozen QA contractors over one third of the studio's QA testers from their studio Raven Software. Contractors who were previously told that the company was working towards a pay restructure to increase their wages believed the jobs were permanent and reported relocating as far as Madison, Wisconsin for the role. In fact, that is the stories uh, that were told about these various things. But again, this is a letter directed at the FTC, who is ostensibly only supposed to be analyzing whether or not a combination between Activision Blizzard and Microsoft will result in less competition in some market. Video games, video game creation cloud software, subscription services. This is trying to apply that to an intermediary market, the labor market as a monopsy buying power, which has its own issues. But all of this is just badness on the part of Activision Blizzard. This is a company that you should not like FTC. And so you should make their lives more difficult, which might be rhetorically useful. I know a number of you feel the same way and I don't really blame you, but it isn't actually talking about the law and what the FTC should be doing. The proposed acquisition appears to be a cynical, an opportunistic attempt to capitalize off the systemic issues coming to light at Activision Blizzard. Now we're getting into Microsoft a little bit, right? And for someone that has a video said, hey, did Microsoft actually impact all of this? And were they opportunistic? Then I obviously agree with certain concepts here. Not that that should change whether or not the deal itself is anti-competitive. Just days after the Microsoft head of Xbox, Phil Spencer, said Microsoft was evaluating all aspects of our relationship with Activision Blizzard due to sexual misconduct at the company, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella expressed interest in acquiring the company. 
While Microsoft capitalized on lower stock prices from the sexual misconduct disclosures, they also signaled that they were willing to prioritize profits over entrenched issues of gender-based discrimination in the organization. Now, this is an interesting slight at Microsoft, and I'm no separate fan of Microsoft as an entity. Nowhere have I read or seen any indication that Microsoft has expressed, in public at least, that they are willing to prioritize profits over entrenched issues of gender-based discrimination. In fact, if you look at footnote 20, which is quoted in this letter, the headline is actually, Microsoft makes a big bet that it can fix Activision Blizzard's troubled culture, which I think is the appropriate framing for what Microsoft has said, what Phil Spencer has said, what Satya Nadella has said, which is we think there are problems, but we think effectively that we can cleanse them at Microsoft, which you can disagree with. In fact, I think Microsoft's going to have its own problems and certainly its management of gaming so far has had many, many questions. You might've seen an expose that Kotaku did on Undead Labs and how that Microsoft's, again, soft-handed approach to management of its studios is potentially harming their ability to get games out and potentially harming their labor itself, the folks that are making their games for them. But that's a separate question This appears to be a bridge too far from my perspective. I don't know of Microsoft signaling prioritization of profits over discrimination in any respect, but that's what is put forth in this paragraph. Activision Blizzard employees have worked to bring the highlighted issues to light and advocate for change in the organization, progress that could be threatened by Microsoft's proposed acquisition. Over 1,500 Activision Blizzard employees participated in a walkout in response to the July 2021 California Department of Fair Employment and Housing lawsuit calling for greater pay transparency and an audit of the Human Resources Department, in fact, which will be happening under the EEOC. After Mr. Kotick's cover-up of widespread issues at the company was revealed in November of 2021, employees conducted another walkout, and the ABK Workers Alliance advocated for a zero-tolerance policy for Mr. Kotick's resignation and for a third-party review of the company. Following Activision Blizzard's layoffs of Raven Software QA workers, Activision Blizzard employees mobilized to demand that every member of the QA team, including those terminated on Friday, must be offered full-time positions. And shortly after the layoffs, Activision Blizzard and Raven Software QA workers began striking. And by January 2022, workers asked for voluntary recognition to form a union with the Communication Workers of America. However... Microsoft's proposed acquisition could interfere with Raven Software's workers' unionization push, although Microsoft announced in March 2022 that it would not stand in the way if Activision Blizzard recognized the proposed union. This announcement appears to be little more than lip service. It provides no assurances of Microsoft's promise and is so vague that it leaves multiple ways for Microsoft to undermine the unionization process and its outcome. And the actions of both Activision Blizzard and Microsoft throughout the merger process undermine the value of the late in the game statement. In fact, I was the one tweeting out that the merger agreement itself says Activision can't voluntarily recognize uh, any union without Microsoft's consent, etc., etc. But again, reframing this letter on the whole, what does that have to do with anti-competition? In fact, what does it have to do with these specific workers who would be operating under new management at Microsoft? This seems to be attempting to hold them at Activision Blizzard so that they can fight the problems that they've had in their own way and not looking to other possibilities to potentially fight and benefit themselves in a different way. For the most part, The United States laws and the antitrust laws are not designed to be picking winners and losers and right strategies and wrong strategies for things that are otherwise legal. If Microsoft and Activision combined don't form a monopsony of worker hiring, which I don't think it's even close that they do, or a monopoly in some kind of games market, then the new company can proceed to work through these issues on their own. And the FTC really shouldn't have anything to say about it as the law exists today. 
Activision Blizzard has already declined to voluntarily recognize the union and engaged in union-busting behavior by reorganizing the QA workers into an embedded model, splitting up the core group of employees in a clear barrier to the unionization effort. Now, this is interesting. I, in fact, reported on this here in Virtual Legality because they did. They started to embed QA workers, not in a QA division, but in the divisions that they QA for directly. And I said, well, that's going to cause even a bigger problem than they already had in framing this as the proper bargaining unit at the company. But... That isn't referenced here in these paragraphs, but a number of folks in gaming said, yes, it's often more efficient to do that that way. So there's a reason for Activision Blizzard to embed those players that don't otherwise get referenced in this paragraph. Instead, they quote the CWA, which is the union trying to organize to collect those dues to represent these companies. CWA organizing director Tom Smith called the reorganization nothing more than a tactic to thwart Raven QA workers who are exercising their right to organize and condemned the company for launching an anti-union campaign and hiring an anti-union law firm. In addition, in their 2022 proxy statement, Activision Blizzard committed to not voluntarily recognize any labor union, works council, or similar employee organization or enter into a collective bargaining agreement, absent Microsoft's approval, adding a further barrier for workers' organizing efforts. And yes, that's all true, uh, and that's in their merger agreement. It is also very standard language in a merger agreement, not necessarily to harm workers, but to make sure that the company that is being purchased stays mostly the same. That is in the covenant section that says you're still going to operate normally. We haven't bought you yet. We're going to spend $70 billion. Try not to change major things at the company, including voluntarily recognizing the union. Obviously, both Microsoft and Activision would follow the law if a vote were properly held under NLRB regulations, and then a union would be recognized without their say-so. But voluntary recognition is not a requirement under the law. And so this is all a bit angels on the head of a pin, but... We're coming to the last major page of this document and we'll see exactly why they are doing all of this. Microsoft's opportunistic merger proposal with Blizzard Activision during its crisis over weak worker protections and its own history with workers also present alarming signs for how Microsoft would treat Activision Blizzard employees. In 2014, 38 of Microsoft's temporary workers in quality assurance successfully formed a union, only to see the company eliminate all of their jobs two years later. Despite a filing with the NLRB alleging that the mass termination constituted illegal retaliation for union activision, uh, activism, Microsoft was largely able to crush the unionization attempt and successfully retaliate against the organizers, which of course is language that is not followed up on uh, by the NLRB, which didn't find retaliation here. And Microsoft has its own problems. In fact, if I were writing this letter, I might reference that Microsoft had its own sexual harassment problems. It's one of the reasons why their own shareholders asked for more reporting from the company, actually passed a proposal against the wishes of management for those reports this last year, but that didn't get referenced here in in essence, what they've referenced is solely a reduction in union workers that maybe isn't the best way to make their point here. In addition, the proposed merger has already impeded unionization efforts and undermined workers' calls for accountability. Over 1,800 Activision Blizzard employees signed a letter calling on Mr. Kotick to step down from the organization, one of union organizers' key demands. However, Microsoft's proposed deal with Activision Blizzard is protecting Mr. Kotick keeping him in his role as CEO until at least 2023 and guaranteeing him hundreds of millions in profit and a potential additional golden parachute worth over $14.5 million if he does not step down voluntarily. This lack of accountability, despite shareholders, employees, and the public calling for Kotick to be held responsible for the culture he created, would be an unacceptable result of the proposed Microsoft acquisition. Again, this is a paragraph talking about Bobby Kotick, saying Bobby Kotick's a bad dude. No problems here. These are perfectly viable opinions to have. What in the world do they have with competition and monopoly powers? That is what the FTC is looking at. 
I'm not asking senators to be perfect here. I am asking them to keep their eyes on the ball, but that's not what they're interested in. Chair Khan recently stated that robust antitrust enforcement can help ensure that workers have the freedom to seek higher pay and better working conditions and can help promote economic opportunity and widespread prosperity for all, which is a completely separate thing from competition again, but we'll allow it. That's the chairperson of the FTC. Evaluating whether prospective transactions may harm our labor markets is a critical part of this enforcement. And our Prohibiting Anti-Competitive Mergers Act would require the antitrust agencies to keep workers front and center throughout any merger review process. We are deeply concerned about consolidation in the tech industry and its impact on workers. And this proposed merger has already hurt workers at Activision Blizzard in their fight for a stable job and safe working environment. The FTC should consider the history described above when assessing the anti-competitive effects that this gigantic merger may produce and carefully determine the meaning of Microsoft's promise to not stand in the way of unionization efforts. If the FTC determines that the transaction is likely to enhance monopsony power and worsen the negotiating position between workers and the parties to this deal, we urge you to oppose it. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Senators Warren, Sanders, White House, and Booker. Now, you probably caught what this is all about here in the last paragraph, but first and foremost, as we described in the top of this letter, the actual call to action is if this increases monopsony power in the labor hiring market and worsens the negotiating position between workers and the parties, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, then this deal should be opposed by the FTC. They should seek to enjoin the actual deal, which I have to tell you, if this were the basis, if the FTC came out with a document to the courts and said it, it enhances monopsony power in the labor market and worsens the negotiating position between workers and the parties of the deal, I think every court in the land would strike it down, which is also understood by the senators themselves, because while they're making this claim that they want labor to be at the front of antitrust review, they're also saying, hey, we've got a law that is proposed to do that, which if you're following along at home, you'd say, well, if the antitrust laws right now, if the Clayton Act, if the Hart Scott Rodino Act, if the Sherman Act actually did this, you wouldn't need another law, right? And if we look at the summary of what that law is from Senator Warren's office, the principal sponsor of this bill, we see exactly what it does. The legislation makes prohibited mergers illegal, which are all mergers valued over $5 billion, which result in market shares of 33% for sellers or 25% for employers. Deals resulting in highly concentrated markets under the 1992 agency guidelines, all prohibited. The legislation would give the antitrust agencies stronger tools, including allowing the agencies to reject mergers without court orders, which would be a very interesting constitutional question as to whether or not the executive could actually just do that unilaterally. I have my doubts. Directing the agencies to scrutinize the labor impacts of each deal and reject mergers that they deem, the FTC or the DOJ, would be harmful to workers, asking them to step into this intermediary market, regardless of what it might do to consumer welfare, whether it would lower prices or increase quality or anything else, but instead take into account this secondary market, which is a political question. You might come into the comments here and say, Rick, I like that. I like that this would be advocated by. But right now, you would have to admit that if this is necessary for a law to be passed, it isn't something that is covered by the laws right now. And in fact, I think that's known to everybody that would be a party to this letter. So everything in front of this is effectively designed to be an advertising campaign for the law that they want voted up in their respective houses of the legislature, right? They want this law to be passed. They are highlighting what they think is a problem realistically with how it might be enforced right now. But the FTC 
isn't operating under a law that doesn't exist yet. And it does have to take into account American jurisprudence. Now, I said yesterday that this is worth noting from the Microsoft side of things, because I've said it's 80-20, and I might reduce that to effectively 75-25 if you've got senators and various people making public complaints about all of this and using the things that are useful in the public eye, like how bad Mr. Kotick is and how much people hate him to try to advance the ball here. But all other things being equal, without a law like this passed, and I have many, many issues with how this is framed. I don't think any given size of merger should be illegal, particularly when the currency rate uh, on an inflationary basis might lead to $5 billion deals more and more often with companies that we wouldn't think are necessarily problematic. I don't think that it's a great idea to take into account intermediary markets when it's already so difficult to try to maintain competition and not advantage specific competitors or markets over one another. But that's all political. And you can have your own opinions on that. Leave them in the comments below if you're interested in doing that. What's more important to me is that you know my representatives, my legislature here in the United States apparently doesn't care about any of that, wants to get out in front in public with a letter that realistically does make this deal less likely talks to the FTC chairperson in their language while advocating a position to be taken that they themselves don't believe is actually adequately covered under the current laws that the FTC should be operating in. That is the absolute state of things here in the United States, and I don't love it. Get this law changed. Get the people on board. Get the people's representatives on board. If you want, get that law changed. Whether I like it or not doesn't matter, but don't tell the FTC, the executive branch, to operate as if that law were already in place, because there are tens of thousands of people's jobs on the line that do need certainty and millions and millions of companies that need certainty with how these agencies are going to react to various transactions. And right now you're advocating for a very uncertain world. And unfortunately, that means I do have to reduce my 80-20 prediction to 75-25 at this point in time. If you enjoy these conversations about the business and law of video games, technology, software, and more, please do consider supporting the channel, as you can see on the screen. If you missed our earlier video, it's about eight minutes long, please do check it out while we're using another platform uh, other than Patreon. You can check it out, Utreon, to support us. More money gets to us from Utreon, doesn't get stopped up at the platform level. They also provide video archiving services, which will serve as a bulwark to YouTube's sometimes mercurial uh, policies on what is allowed to be discussed on their platform. Do check it out. They're fantastic. And if you have any questions for them, they are vastly more responsive uh, than either YouTube or Patreon. So you can ask them whatever you like about their platform, either in the comments to that video or, or directly to them. If none of that interests you, don't blame you. Just subscribe. Tell your friends. Ring bells, upvotes, downvotes, comments. Leave those comments for engagement. I love those ones that just say, comment for engagement and otherwise tell people that we're having these conversations because I think they're important and hopefully they're entertaining as well as educational. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.